Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My name is Mel Fulton. You are tuned to Literati Glitterati and it is my great pleasure to introduce today's first and only guest. We're just going to go really, really deep with Sean Hughes today, which is exciting. Sean is a writer who grew up in a small village in Cheshire where the story Pearl is set. Returning to live there after her mother's death, she borrowed from the medieval poem Pearl to write a story set in the old house she cycled past every day as a child. Pearl is an exceptional debut novel, what I like to call a small and perfect book. It centres Mary Ann, who is eight years old when her mother goes missing. Left behind with her baby brother and grieving father in a ramshackle house on the edge of a small village, she clings to the fragmented memories of her mother's love. The scent of the garden on her fingers, the games they played and the songs and stories of her childhood... As Marianne grows older, she struggles to adjust. She turns to the medieval poem named Pearl as a comfort and sets about making an artistic representation of it, a task she returns to again and again but struggles to complete. As her childhood home crumbles, Marianne stumbles down a path of self-destruction. But can art heal Marianne? And what about her own journey to motherhood? Will it help her find peace? This is a gorgeous, generous and lyrical book from someone who's got quite a lot of skin in the game. Um, It's a pre-recorded interview and I'm going to play it for you in three parts. I would like to flag a little bit of a content warning for everybody who's listening out there. There are references to to harm and to, to mental health and to suicide ideation. If these themes are a little bit heavy for you today, please feel free to tune in another time if you need some help. You can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Sean Hughes talking about her fantastic debut novel, Pearl. Okay, well, you're listening um, to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. And I can't even remember when I first read it now, because for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to write something in response to it. I never felt that I would have the technical skills to translate it because it's in Middle English. It was actually written at the same time as Chaucer, and you can read Chaucer in the original. It more or less makes sense, you know. But this one was written where I come from, which is in the northwest of England, in Cheshire. And it was written in the language that was spoken in Cheshire at the time. And so to a modern reader now, it's almost impossible to read in the original because that language was lost and then the language that Chaucer spoke in London, that became modern English. And so the language from my part of the world fell away, if you like. Mm. Um, But this is a beautiful, beautiful story, Pearl, and I do feel it sort of belongs to me because it belongs where I come from and it has um, a dreamer, goes to a graveyard, But he says it's a garden, goes to a garden. He says his pearl has trundled down under the soil 
and he's lost it. But you understand through this that it's actually a human that he's lost, Mm. maybe called Pearl, and that it's his daughter, his toddler daughter. He travels in a dream, he falls asleep on the grave, and he travels in a dream to meet her on the other side of the river of death. And she's grown up. She's like a young woman, she's about 12, and she's talking to him across the river and trying to teach him how he should accept her death. But he keeps arguing with her and saying he just can't accept, he can't live with it. And in the end, he tries to cross the river to join her, but obviously he's not allowed. And so he wakes up again. And so we understand that the pearl is this this young girl who's been lost And at the time um, it was written, Pearl was a really common name for girls. Or sometimes a a girl would be called Margaret or Marjorie, which means Pearl. And so that's why I named the character who's died in my book, Margaret. Mm, And then her granddaughter is named after after her. And so her granddaughter's second name is Pearl, but she's being named for her grandmother. That's a beautiful cyclical thing. And I find... There's something enormously comforting, isn't there, about thinking about this poem that was conceived and written so long ago and the idea that, you know, grief and yearning and and pining and sort of processing loss is is something that is all our lives work and and sort of the, you know, it's part of the human condition. It's, It's quite essential and has been no matter how things change. Yes, I think that was what's so astonishing about this old poem. It's very, very elaborate. It's very highly structured. So you could say it's sort of as perfect as it can be in its construction. But what you get when you read it is this sort of sense of heightened reality that you get when you're grieving. And it's like what you get coming across most of all is just this really, really strong feeling of loss from the narrator his inability to face life without his daughter. It's absolutely heartbreaking as a read. But as you say, that thing of it being heartbreaking is also consoling to other human beings because you think someone else felt this. Mm. Someone else had this feeling. And someone else had this feeling all those centuries ago. It felt no different. It felt no different to lose a child then, you know, all that long time ago that uh, it feels now. And so that's the strange thing about that poem. It's so immediate. So that was sort of what inspired me. I was thinking, this is just astonishing that somebody all this time ago has written something so complex to express something so simple. And I suppose what you've done with Pearl is you've you've imagined a daughter who has lost her mother. And so I suppose in a way you've um, you've flipped the narrative of the original poem and you've had a child pine for a parent. And I think that you've done this so gorgeously um, to capture that extraordinary loss from the perspective of somebody who's eight years old and then to carry that sense of loss with that character, um, with Marianne, as she grows up and becomes an adult and we get this, this beautiful kind of insight into, you know, the way this loss has shaped her and into her childlike self, even as she grows and becomes a woman and a mother herself. Can you tell us about the decision to, to make it about a daughter's loss of, of her mother? The way that I chose who was going to be lost was by a sort of random process, which sounds a bit bizarre, but a friend of mine in my 20s, a friend of mine took his life by drowning and it felt so random 
to me. And that was the first time in my life I'd come across that experience. I didn't know anything at the time about, you know, the, the high statistics for young men. And I, you know, I knew very little about uh, mental illness at the time. So it's a total shock to me. And I thought this could be anybody. Mm. If he can feel like this, everyone can feel like this. So I took all the characters in the book. I was writing Pearl at the time and I had all these characters, but I didn't know what was going to happen to them. I didn't know how I was going to translate the setting into some kind of action. So I had the characters and I had the setting. I knew it was connected to Pearl, but I didn't know how. So I wrote all their names on a piece of paper, closed my eyes and pointed my finger at the piece of paper. And whoever's name it fell on would go into the river. And I did this to try and express how unlikely it felt to me that my friend would have done that. So I pointed to the name of the mother and then I thought, well, that's impossible. Who could write such a horrible book? That's going to be terrible for everyone. No one's going to recover. I can't do this to my characters. I love my characters. Why would I do this awful thing? And then gradually I began to think over years and years and years, why would she be in this state of mind? What could possibly have happened to her? What could be the connection to the Pearl poem. Why would she do this? And obviously I came up with what's the sort of central mystery of the book. As I as I grew older, I experienced postpartum depression and psychosis for myself. And I began to feel more sympathy for this character. Instead of blaming her for what she was doing, I grew in sympathy. So the whole time I was writing the book, I missed her. I hadn't wanted her to die. I thought she was a lovely character. I wanted her to stay. So while I was writing it, I missed her. And I gradually began to feel I could forgive her for being the one who did it. And so I think that I was hoping that because I wrote it in this way, I wrote it like as a way to try and find out for myself why she might do it, that the fact that I missed the character very much, that I hadn't wanted it to happen, that might might translate to the reader as them missing her and wishing it hadn't happened as well. Oh, absolutely. It's a wonder of a book. And if you're listening right now and thinking, what what an impossibly sad narrative, I'd just like to kind of interject now and say, what you do, though, that is so extraordinary, is you dance with this narrative. It's quite a small book. It has this kind of overarching mystery that, that sort of holds it together, incredible humanity, and it's also grounded so completely in place, like in the neighbourhood of Cheshire and especially in the family home where they grew up, this wonderful rambling cottage that is alive with memories of that family and of her mother, the way her fingers smell like mint and onions and lavender. You know, you can hear the river all of the sort of little wonders to be to behold. Can you tell us a bit about writing place? And, and place is sort of a storehouse for our memories because I think that's a really consoling part of this book. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. This book had always been set in that particular house. So that is really just on the edge of the village where I grew up. So I would call Tilston, which is the village that's named in the book, as my home village. It's where I spent my childhood it's where my mother is buried, my grandparents, and it's the place that I feel at home. And its landscape, to me, is an expression of that feeling of home. And I did want to write a sort of a love song to my village, in a way. I wanted something which celebrated its sort of rambling buildings and boggy fields and 
beautiful ancient hedges that have got lots of different kinds of trees in and you know the wild food you can get this time of year all the dams and some blackberries and things that are growing in the hedges and just the, the smells of it the the you know the wet sandstone and as you say the smell of mint and onions and lavender that that garden smell that to me conjures home so I wanted it to be like quite a joyous book in that way and that I wanted to write a love song to the place that I, I belong and and to my mother and to all the great things that she did and, and all the wonderful times that we had together um, when I was a child. So the two are connected in my mind, the village and my mum. So somebody said to me, you must have done a lot of research in folklore and like ancient beliefs and stuff like that. And I said, no, I haven't done any at all. I haven't done any <laughs> research at all. Uh, I just I just listened to my mother. So that would just be like what it was like how, how going for a walk with my mother, you know, and she would be picking some damsons or blackberries out of the hedge to make jam. And she would say, well, do you realise that this hedge must be 600 years old? Because I've just counted how many different kinds of trees there are in these steps and so that means this hedge is older than any of those houses over there and then she said you know the name of this field and I said well, what do you mean she said, all the fields have names don't you even know that you know the fields have names and this field's called Draconai because it's the dragon's eye because the stream floods down there and then she'd tell you a story about the stream flooding one night and the farmer rescuing a, a calf newborn from that stream bed and so by the time you got home with your damsons, you, you just sort of absorbed all this local folklore story. So no, I didn't need to do any research at all. How extraordinary. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. My name is Mel Fulton. It is a delight to have you tuning in. Today on the show, we are talking with Sean Hughes, who is the author of a small and perfect book called Pearl, which has just come out in Australia, released through the University of Queensland Press. We heard her earlier sort of reflecting on the medieval poem that the book is named for, talking about writing a, a love letter to, to the place where she's from and, and to her mother as well who who shared with her all this incredible incredible knowledge and folklore about the place where she grew up we're going to go into the second part of the interview now and I'd just like to give a gentle content warning to everybody who is listening at home this next section of the interview will be talking about suicide if if that is an uncomfortable topic for you or something that you're not that you're not ready to listen to right now please do tune out go over and I don't know put on pink or something like that talk to you soon Something that does really loom in this book and that is that is challenging and sad is, uh, you know, we know the statistics around suicide for surviving members of, of a family or the people that were close to a member, uh, to somebody who suicides, their risk of doing the same is much higher. And your character certainly reflects on that and talks about an exit sign being lift, lit up and talks about her own challenges day to day and working through her grief and the various other kind of malaise that comes with just being a human in the world, all the while knowing that there's this exit strategy and it has been done before and it could be done again. Can you tell us a little bit about writing that journey for that person and the kind of endurance it involves to keep going? That chapter called The Exit Sign, which tries to talk about the risk factor 
for somebody who's very close to somebody who's taken their life that they are more likely because it's opened up that possibility that that is now a real strategy in their minds because somebody very close to them has done that. And I've taken that chapter out and put it back in and taken it out so many times because I felt it was so taboo to talk about somebody struggling with that exit sign, knowing that that was a, a part of the way their mind worked and the way they had to try and negotiate with the exit sign. They couldn't switch it off. They're just constantly trying to renegotiate a new way of living with it and the sort of exhaustion of that and the pressure of that on on their mental health i felt this was such a dangerous taboo to write about that i I put this in and took this out in the end i decided to be brave and sort of come clean with this and this is something that i have struggled with in my life because that it's sort of the the jeopardy at the heart of the book that there is a sense that this might be that the character Marianne might be compiling this record of her mother as a farewell. Yeah. That there is always that possibility that she's trying to record her mother's life and write some sort of tribute to her because she doesn't feel she's free to leave until her work is done. So in the end, I decided it was important enough for the jeopardy at the heart of the book that this had to be kept in but yes I did have quite a lot of concern about writing about that that anybody who's a parent who who writes in that way I thought people might be really really awful to me about this um do I dare put this down and then I've been just so warmed and surprised by people saying to me I really like that bit because no one else has acknowledged this or this is something I haven't seen acknowledged openly and um, it was an important part of the book to me. I I am quite glad that I put that in now, that I was brave because people have come to me and said, I'm glad you acknowledged that it can be a part of life because it isn't the whole of Marianne's character. She's a very funny person. She's completely non-judgmental in her friendships. She's a highly original, very entertaining person But she can be all those things, a talented artist, a good parent, somebody who loves the countryside, is close to all her family. She can be all those things and still have the exit sign in her head. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you wrote that chapter. I think it's it felt like a huge comfort to me and I think it would be to many people who read the book. Thank you. I know that this book was, it wasn't a fast book to write. It's its something that, I mean, even the character of Marianne reflects in her own artistic practice that the writing of this book or the legacy of this work that she is doing, she's started and never finished and she's done it many, many, many times. She's almost mocked herself with it. She's left manuscripts unfinished in various rental homes. You know, it's almost been this thing of being afraid to finish it or unsure how to finish it or what, what note to leave things on. And I wanted to ask how Marianne's process and yours were the same or how they were different? Uh, Well, I did write that part about Marianne's processes as a way, I think, of writing, confessing to how long it has taken me and to all the different processes it has been through. So, yes, it was like a reflection on my own long, long relationship with this poem, Pearl, and my many, many attempts to write a response to it. And I think what changed for me that I was able to finish it was that I allowed my narrator to grow older as I grew older. 
So when I first started writing it, my narrator was still very young and still very, very much in the heart of those very youthful troubles, which we see in the early part of the book. And by allowing her to grow older as I grew older, I allowed her to survive those things. And so this made it a so much more hopeful book because you see that she's reached an age where she has been through like a very troubled youth and has struggled in her 20s and has struggled to establish herself in a way of life with her own family. And then you see at the end that she has sort of despite herself, if you like, found her own peace with herself. She is more comfortable in her skin. She's quite happy with who she is in lots of ways. And so I think by letting her get to a stage in her life where she could live with everything that had happened to her, you know, live joyfully, that was what allowed me to finish the book because I felt she was in a place now that I could leave her quite safely. She's okay now. On Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton and that was Sean Hughes there reflecting on her beautiful book, her debut novel, in fact, called Pearl, which is out now through UQP Press. Do stick around. We're going to hear a little bit more from Sean. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You are also a poet, a decorated poet, and this book is, well, it's inspired by a poem. It's very lyrical and dancey. I love the way that you bring in, you do so much with so few words. Can you tell us about... I suppose, the challenges and the delights in shifting mediums slightly? I think probably that's one of the reasons it's taken me so long to write it, is that I started off trying to write a novel with my poet's head on, and I tried to structure and organise the book so rigidly, wanted it to follow a perfect pattern, the way that the poem that was inspired by follows a perfect pattern and has all these different link words and repeats and everything. Terrible idea for a novel. If you're out there and you want to write a novel, like, like take it from me. This will never work. It's a dreadful approach to a novel. You have to allow the characters to sort of lead the action and for them to do things that surprise you as a writer. So basically you have to allow them more freedom. And so it took me a long time to gain that confidence in prose. I didn't have to be in control of everything, didn't have to follow a pattern. And a really good friend of mine who writes detective fiction gave me a fantastic piece of advice a couple of years ago. Don't write the chapters in the right order. Hmm. Anything that you think of, anything that you wake up thinking, oh, what if she did this? Or I wonder if she'd like that, you know. She said, just write it. It doesn't matter if that's going to happen later in the book when it comes to it. Just write them. And then later, you can put them all together and decide what order they go in. And they'll be fine. And I think this is a common way of working for people who do like whodunits. Mm. Because you might already know as the writer who who done it before we started. But it's quite a good idea to write it in, in funny order. And then you decide which clues are going to be put in when. So this was a really, really liberating technique for me and it got me out of my poet's head of controlling things and it allowed it to fly off in all directions and just accumulate different scenes and different things and then later try and pull them back together. So in some ways, being a poet did help in, as you say, not trying to spend too many words on things. I'm not a poet who writes like long 
descriptions. And I'm only a poet in that I write things in a very, very small number of words. So in some ways it helped. Believing that you can have six things happening on the page, still maintain clarity, not use too many words. So I knew that's possible because it happens in poems. Mm. But in terms of trying to write a narrative as a poet, basically put your poet's head in the bin. Stop <laughs> trying to control everything. Just let the characters do some chatting, you know? Yeah, I love that because I think that that lends a tremendous sense of sort of energy and that spirit of curiosity and of, you know, you mentioned earlier that you you're inspired to write this. is almost like an empathic experience. What would it be like if the mother took her life what what would the legacy of that be how would the daughter process that and being able to sort of wake up in the morning or go for a walk or you know be inspired by a conversation that you've had and run with that thread and later weave them together it sounds enormously freeing and like it would be a very interesting editing process can I ask you about the editing process yeah so I've got lots and lots of sections and lots of different things and I had the, like, the songs and different children's rhymes and games and things. And I emptied out the biggest room I could. And I had little tiles, little piles of paper all over the floor because I couldn't mentally organise the pieces if they were just on a computer or I actually needed to physically move things around mm. like a giant patchwork. And when I when I had done that, I I went back in and I added in a little tiny reference late in the story where Marianne says she enjoys patchwork <laughs> <laughs> because that was what this is what it felt like trying to put the thing together. I did have a whole floor covered in little piles of paper. Wow, it sounds chaotic and of the body and like it would ultimately be quite a satisfying thing when it came together. But yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It was lovely to speak to you and really a pleasure to read the book. Oh, thank you so much and thank you for your time. So much appreciated. No worries. Thanks, Sean. On Triple R, Literati Glitterati, that was Sean Hughes, author of the wondrous debut novel Pearl, which is out now through the University of Queensland, Queensland Books. Do head over to, you know, your local independent bookshop or to the library and pick up a copy. I was absolutely delighted by this book. It just dances across the page. It's told with so much heart and so much generosity and, um, you know, a wonderful sense of... Um, I suppose self knowledge, which which really sets it apart from from many other things, many other things that are out there on the shelves at the moment. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and thank you hugely to Sean Hughes, author of Pearl, uh, for having a chat to us on the show. It was an absolute delight. Next week on Literati Glitterati, we've got Amanda Laurie coming in to talk about her new novel, The Conversion. That's going to be a real winner too. Thanks so much. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.